how many epi- what epi- how many episodes are you what are you up to uh you'll be 35 i think 35 yeah you guys are ba- you're still babies i don't think you learn anything after 100 after 100 you learn how to like do the same thing like the like zen of doing the same thing forever Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write, a show about allergy season and how terrible it is when you've become normalized to New York City, where there are no trees for most months out of the year. If I were to explain to somebody how not to do an intro, I would just show them that recording. We're going to use that one. But anyways, we're here to talk about writing. Uh, And mostly, we're here to talk about Aaron Lammer today, right? He's on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most of you who know, you know, podcasts about writing probably know who Aaron is, uh, because he is one of the proprietors and hosts of Long Form, which is my—I don't know if I'd say favorite, but definitely like one of my like top ten podcasts. Uh, it's incredible, and it's all about writing, and it was the inspiration for this show. It, until we started doing the show, you had tried several times to convert me into a Long Form listener, and I resisted mostly because it was coming from you. <laughs> But once I did actually start listening to it, I I realized that uh, unlike so many other instances in my life, I had been wrong to discount your advice. Oh, yeah. So that was the one time that you were wrong. Um, But yes, this is one of the few instances. I I can't tell if you realize that I'm being sarcastic yet. Why don't you... Do you want me to keep going with this? I can't understand if you're being sarcastic or not because your voice sounds awful. Yeah, I'm, I'm lost in hay fever it's just clouding, uh, and I, t- I also took some um, some sinus medicine. So you are half asleep as you record this. Well, we're yeah, we're recording this as the effects are starting to kick in, which is always wonderful. So if at any point I just trail off in the middle of a... You there? <laughs> uh, hey, so let's just kick it off then, because you sound awful. What does Aaron want to chat about today? Today we're going to talk about a lot of different things. We're going to talk a lot about his new podcast, uh, a little bit about his new album, and then he's going to tell us about, I don't even want to try to describe it, but the story that he tells us towards the end is definitely one of the stranger things that we've heard on the podcast, and you should stick around for it. It's great. The band that Kyle's talking about is Francis and the Lights, and the podcast that Kyle mentioned is called Stoner. It examines the culture behind marijuana. Um, in a lot of different ways that you would not expect. And we really get into the weeds here. Let's get to the interview. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, what's going on? Not much. I don't think you and Kyle have met before, but you and I go back a little bit. Um, uh, I was on your panel, your South by Southwest panel at one point. Yeah, and it's funny. I saw an interview that you, you gave to your alma mater where you said, uh, and, and this is exactly what we had planned when it happened, but, um, you know, we, uh, I think in the interview you said, like, yeah, I did it so I could get the free pass. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Guilty. Yeah, can't blame you. I did the same thing. I, you, you wanted to have a session where we, like, did prep for the panel, and I, I was like, oh, come on, man. The whole yeah. point of a panel is not to prepare for it. Well, I didn't know that at the time. I was 24, and that was like my first like major professional thing. And I realize now that you literally fill out like a survey online, so it's not necessarily that major or professional. But I was excited. Evan, who's who has been on the show, um, Evan Ratliff, 
the first like nine times that I hung out with him was being on a panel with him. That's where I, that's where I know him from. <laughs> I had never hung out with him in New York. We had hung out like all over the country uh, on journalism panels. So there was like a good two year span where I think we were both like um, could get on a lot of journalism panels and then it all dried up for me. Now uh, no one wants to be on a journalism panel washed up. <laughs> well, I think what you're getting at is that at some point soon, you, Kyle, and I are going to be best friends and business partners. Sure. Yeah. Uh, if um, you got to get, it, you got to throw some more panels first. Yeah. I just got. <laughs> I've never been invited to a panel in my life, so I got to figure out where that door is. How do I find it? We'll find it. We will find it for you. Well, I, I feel like I'm stealing Paul Ford's thunder a little bit because you talked about this, and he gave a very similar intro on your interview with him on track changes, but. Uh, Every time I have it's a right. conversation, no, listen, there's no overlap between all these podcasts. You don't have to worry about this. People yeah. think this happens to me all the time. Long form people are like, well, I already told this. It's, it's fine. There's no, there's no, uh, it, it, all these podcasts. You're lucky if one person listens to any of them. That's how, that's what my attitude towards podcasting. Well, and it's funny that you say that because you are, you know, the proprietor of two fairly well-known podcasts. I mean, one is very well-known and the other is pretty new. And, and I want to get into that in a bit, but you were the kind of person who, you know, you're, you're impressive when you speak to, but then like you keep on making these offhand comments about like, oh, the time I performed and opened for Drake or, oh, that time I was in a music video with, with Chance the Rapper and Kanye West. You know, you, you have these amazing life stories that just kind of come off. And when you tell them, they're just like, oh, it's just like another day. Like I got my coffee, I hung out with Kanye. And then like, you know, I told my wife that I, I have to, you know, do some work. So, I mean, I guess my question is like, what are the three best things that you've ever done in your opinion? Like the best quality? Just random facts about you. Um, that's hard. I don't know. That's hard. Well, I think your characterization is a little off. I like, I've only met Kanye once in my life for like two seconds. So that's once more than most people. <laughs> so <laughs> to be honest, like the, the portion of my life, uh, that has, uh, overlapped with that music stuff is mostly like me sitting in like a dark basement with one other person who I write songs with, with like two laptops open, like desperately, desperately trying to do, to get some, like something to get anything together. Um, and that's literally what I was doing like 15 minutes before, um, you guys just called me. Um, so <laughs> Uh, that's like really much more my, like my experience, honestly, like I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions about like, uh, celebrities that I've, um, <laughs> briefly interacted with. I do know, I do know chance chances is that, that I don't, uh, I'm comfortable saying like we were, uh, on tour myself and Francis, I went on tour in, uh, November, uh, October and November of last year, opening for chance, the rapper, um, Francis performed solo and I played the music off a laptop and, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we did nine weeks. I think we did 36 shows in 42 days, uh, 33 shows opening for chance, three shows opening for Bon Iver. Um, it was, it was, it was grueling. It was, um, <laughs> really interesting and also really like mind numbing, and I, I'm glad I got to see it, but it's not something I would definitely, it's definitely not something I would want to do like, uh, every month for the rest of my life. Um, but 
It's funny that you say that because I, I was at the San Francisco show or one of the San Francisco shows where you opened for Chance, and I remember uh, was that the Belgram Civic Auditorium. Yeah, yeah. I could only afford a ticket to either that or the one where you opened in. I think it was Berkeley for uh, Bon Iver. And yeah, that was at the uh, Fox Theater in Oakland. Yeah, and and I I could only afford one, and I remember like flipping a coin to try and decide because I love Chance, but I've always loved Bon Iver. So I went to Chance, and it was awesome. It was so fun. I so fun, in fact, that I'm going to see him again in Boston, uh, in a couple of weeks. Oh, is that um, Boston Colin? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're will, playing will at you that be show. There? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Fred. Yeah. So we'll we'll have Francis to. Says, we'll have... Francis says yes. Francis uh, says yes. Oh, is he there right now? <laughs> He's he's napping another. He's taking a, he's taking a nap. Um, yeah. So you know we did we did all those shows. Actually, at that San Francisco show. I have a photograph. You can link to it in the show notes. So okay. one of the crazy parts of like going to all these shows is um, watching them. You know, like I've seen this show many times and just seen like insane crowds. Seen like every permutation of a crazy crowd. And that was one of the craziest crowds in the country. That one was like, I was at the very top. I remember I sat in the top row and you could just see these waves of people, like a wave of energy and people would all get like pushed forward on towards the stage. <laughs> it can be scary. Like kids were fainting. Um, you know, big crowds of people are like, they have their own like dynamics. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was incredible. I, I, it was one of the only shows that I've been to that had that kind of like atmosphere, I think, uh, yeah. which tells me I need to go to more shows. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, let's back up a little bit then and talk about, you know, what is your history with, with Francis and, and what do you actually do? Because I remember being, you know, a little surprised actually when Francis came out on stage alone. And, and I've realized since that you, you have like a very distinct function within that band. Um, so do you want to oh, talk a little bit about what that? I means? mean, to be honest, that's the only time I've ever even toured with the band. Oh yeah. Um, so normally, uh, you know, I only, I go to the shows are in New York or I, you know, I occasionally I'll go see the LA shows, but I don't go, I don't go on tours. Um, Why when not? we were younger, well, when we were younger, um, for, for starters, the band hasn't really toured very much. We've never done a, a national headlining tour. Um, and usually we're opening for someone and then only really sparingly, we've only played six or seven national tours, say, and that's over like, you know, over a decade. Um, a lot of that time we were just like, no one would, you know, we weren't big enough that anyone would come and see us. Like we would, if we, if we went and played in, uh, like Kansas city, we'd draw like three people, you know? <laughs> so it's a little bit of an acquired taste that, um, in New York or LA might seem like a big thing, but it, it, it's not, we've never been on, you know, really on a major label or anything. We don't, and we're not really, we were never extensive tours. Um, there used to be a band that played like people who played a live band. Um, and so, you know, that was a different thing. The recording band and, and the live band are totally separate really. Um, and Francis plays most of the music uh, in, in the recorded stuff. And increasingly, um, over the last couple of years, we've really moved towards like working pretty directly with computers. Um, the last record was mostly made in computers. And so is that where you of, come in? Um, no, our, our dynamic is always basically the same, which is, you know, it's Francis's band and we write songs together. And so we write, you know, at given times, sometimes half the songs more recently, well, more than a half of the songs. And that's just what we do. We sit down and like write the songs. Um, and try to 
make the best album that we can. Um, and we work with like a lot of people now, you know, modern productions, like pretty different than I think people imagine, um, how recording works. Uh, you know, we've worked with a lot of different producers and different people putting, um, their stamp on it, but uh, at a basic level, you know, the basic currency is songs and we try to sit in a room and, and come up with song ideas. Um, now, are you, melodies. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, this might be a dumb question, but, you know, at, at the very, like, basic component pieces, when you say that you're writing a song, does that mean that you're actually, like, coming up with the instrumentals? Are you writing the lyrics? Like, are you bringing um, on all, sound design? All of that, all of that stuff is, is part of it, but, um, you know, it's mostly just, like, if I was trying to communicate a song to you, like, uh, that we both know, you know, uh, I could play a little bit of the instrumental for you or I could sing a melody for you. And those are all like sort of basic building blocks. So usually we're starting with, yeah, like chord progressions and uh, little instrumentals and, and trying to write melodies over them and trying to take things that are, you know, I'd say the, the, the bulk of the work is taking things that are a third done or a half done and, and turning them into finished pieces. Um, and I don't think like, it's not like a particularly unusual pursuit. Um, I'm a particularly like non-musician to be involved with it. Um, but you meet all kinds of people who, who, who do this stuff. And a lot of the bands that I really like in the sixties and seventies were like musician, you know, writing pairs often with people who didn't play in the band. Um, the Grateful Dead operated that way, Procol Harum. So there's precedence for it. When you say different people want to come in and put their stamp in that modern recording doesn't look like a lot of people expect can you describe that i'm not very familiar with the process but i'd love to know well i mean like um you can read a little bit about it and like some of john seabrook's writing for the new yorker uh, he wrote a book called the music machine um it's kind of how modern pop is produced is there's like songwriters and producers uh, we did a lot of work on our record with a guy named benny blanco who's a really incredible producer and um you know has worked with uh, Katy Perry and Rihanna and you know the basic premise would be if you look at one of those songs um, there's six or seven eight ten people listed as writers and different people put little bits of work into it um, and you know our album is not exactly that way but there are like lots of different people who contributed writing to it so you, uh, I've heard you say in other interviews that you were not a writer in the sense that you like put words on paper. That's right. Yeah. So why not? Like, is that just something you don't have any interest in? Uh, <coughs> um, it, I had aspirations. Like I did some screenwriting when I was younger and like, I would be into doing that if, you know, <laughs> people would have me. Uh, um, I'm not like opposed to any of it. Um, but I do believe that you kind of pursue the things that are the most interesting to you. And, uh, I've pursued music pretty, um, pretty vigorously for the last few years, just like, you know, it's a decent amount of work to, to operate at the level, the stuff we're doing musically. It's not like most of the people who are doing this is a full-time job for them. It's not a full-time job for me. Um, but with the like two or three other projects that I do, mm -hmm. um, I'm not like, man, I should like read a novel in my spare time. Like, <laughs> like I have a lot of, like I, I stay pretty, pretty busy. 
Uh, yeah. But I'd like to, I do have like, I have aspirations towards a lot of projects that are probably outside of my uh, time uh, availability. Um, I'm attracted, I'm also attracted to things that I can release and can find a home and, and people can listen to, you know, it's validating having worked on this album because I know people actually listen to it and it's like has a life and same thing mm-hmm. with podcasts. Uh, it would be hard for me, I think, to stop and like spend years writing something. I really admire people who do, but I'm uh, kind of impatient and, and I like having a connection with what I'm doing to an audience. Well, it's interesting to me because uh, I mean, so much of your career does have to do with, uh, you know, heralding the written word. Um, you know, you, you, that's all accidental though. I didn't, I didn't intend any of that stuff to happen. <laughs> well, give us, give us a little walkthrough on the genesis of long form then, uh, which um, for anybody listening who doesn't know is like a website where it curates the, uh, like the best long form writing on the internet. Uh, it's all nonfiction and like some of it, or it's mostly like curated by, by people like Aaron and his, his co-founder Max, but is there any like machine algorithms in there or anything? Um, no, there's not. I do have some sort of algorithmic techniques to like get a list of sort of what's, what's worth, you know, what our editors should read every day. Um, that can be algorithmic a little bit, like what the pool is. Um, but since we're only picking like three stories every day, um, each of those gets read by a person. Um, and you know, a lot of things has, have changed since we started the site. When we started the site, the iPad was just coming out. Um, people were starting to read on their phones, and there was a real need uh, to do two things. One, which is to find reading material, um, because you don't want to be on the train browsing, looking for something to read. You don't want to spend all your time uh, searching, especially when you have limited Wi-Fi so, or limited uh, connection. So on one level, it was a supply issue with keeping people stocked, in, in reading material. And also I think the mobile reading experience was pretty crappy then. So we felt like being able to save into Instapaper or pocket or readability, or eventually we had our own app, being able to sort of create a dedicated reader. That was a reading space that wasn't part of the clickbaity internet had an appeal. That's changed a little bit. I think actually mobile re- reading experience have gotten a lot better, but there's also just more and more and more content. So I do think that having a sort of smart person filter on the web for a lot of people. And like, I'll be honest, like if you're like already surfing all over the internet and on Twitter and follow a bunch of journalists, you probably don't need it. Um, you might need it if you're an older person, like, you know, just kind of doing your thing, not spending your whole life on the internet. It's a good way to find the best reading material. Well, you, you have done it in such a way where you can actually go back and, and you have like a really dedicated user base. Yes, we do. You know, there's like hundreds of thousands of people that are on this thing every month that keep coming back. And, uh, and I mean, close to a million. Yeah. Close to a million. Wow. And I mean, it's so dedicated that like you guys were able to like launch a spinoff podcast where you choose, you know, various writers and you interview them. Uh, you release an episode every week. I don't think you guys have ever missed a week, but you know, I also I think we do, but we generally do 50 shows a year. We don't do like a Christmas show usually. And there's one other one we don't do, but yeah, um, you we're relentless. Yeah. Uh, and that's something I deeply believe in. And in podcasting, um, 
it, you know, that was something I really wanted to make sure I did with Stoner also, which was to like, Max was really adamant when we started and he was right. We're going to do it every, every week for a year before we start evaluating how successful it is. And it's hard to start a podcast. It's hard to get things off the ground. And I do think people are yearning for consistency. And, um, yeah, now that we have, you know, a pretty big audience, um, it's super important that we have a good show up every week. Um, and that I credit Max really with, with making sure that happened over time. Well, it's funny that you say that though, because you said just now that you guys wanted to do for the first year, like every single week, and then you would evaluate it. You also said the same thing with Stoner when you had your track changes interview with, with Paul Ford yep. and Rich. You know, I'm is saying there... it in public as much as possible so that if I try to later go back on it, someone will be like, hey, <laughs> you said on multiple podcasts. <laughs> well, I feel I, I guess my question is like I, and I know that consistency is king when it comes to content and everything. But like, is there a point where after a year, like if you look at this and you don't think it's done what you want it to do, you're just going to like give up and go on to the next project? That's hard to say. I'm not very good at abandoning projects, so <laughs> I don't know. I, well, I don't know. We'll have to see. I, I think of I think about it more and about not about thinking about when I'm going to stop, but thinking that you can't expect to succeed in a shorter period of time than that. You know, like we're big and we're big investors in, in ourselves. Um, both myself, Max, Evan, the other guy who who's um, also a co-host of long form podcast, you know, a lot of these projects that, that you're thinking of, like, as like, Oh, that's a big project. It's a big thing on the internet. That's generally achieved through time and, and persistence. And I, I think of it more like the reward on the investment would not be high enough from doing this one year. It's mm -hmm. like year three that it was worth it doing year one. So I, I'm going to say that anybody who wants to like really learn more about long form should go back and listen to the Evan Ratliff episode. Uh, and you know, cause we really did. <coughs> He's got a um, lovely voice too. He does. And so do you, so do you <laughs> No, I'm a little, I'm a little raspy. Let's talk a little bit about long form, but anybody who really wants to like get into the weeds, uh, should listen to our episode with Evan. Um, Evan hey, Ratliff. anyone who wants to get in the weeds should listen to my new podcast stoner that too, oh, yeah. which we're getting to in a minute. Uh, but with long form, and I guess like this is a good transition for Stoner too, but I'm curious, how do you choose your guest for each of the shows? Because so far for Stoner, I mean, you've only released seven episodes at the time of this recording. You know, it seems like it's kind of random who you choose. Um, it is. Well, on long form, each guest books their own. So um, it's each person choosing who they're interested in. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I try and keep it mixed, so I don't want to have... You know, like I had Nick Bilton on this week or last week. And so I'm not going to have like a white man who's a tech reporter on for a year now. You know, um, <laughs> I'm trying oh, to wow. distribute my even because otherwise I, I do kind of gravitate towards my interest. I love having like music writers on, but I don't want to do more than maybe one or two shows a year tops on that topic. <clears throat> um, but, you know people end up on sort of a, like a long list of people we'd like to have on the show someday. And then some weird happenstance will make it, it that time. Um, in Bilton's book case, he's got a book. That's a common reason he's, you know, out pushing his book. His publicist sends me an email and I'm like, well, I've always wanted to have Nick Bilton on. He's got a book about the silk road out. I'm like, okay, this seems like a good, this seems like a good thing to spend like a couple days of my week on, you know? 
Um, I like, I wanted to read the book. So that's how we do those. Um, for stoner, it's a little bit more, um, something I'm feeling out now. And to be honest, it's hard to book because I don't know everyone who smokes weed in the world. Um, (laughs) and it can be, um, you know, uncomfortable to just to ask someone like that. And I I don't want to pry into people's business. Um, which isn't to say that you have to smoke weed to come on the show. There's many people I'm interested in talking about on the show who I wouldn't care whether they smoke weed or not, but kind of my original premise for the show was that it would be normal, creative people who smoke weed, like showing the variety of people in America who like weed now. And I've had to gravitate a little bit towards people who have a professional association with weed um, simply because those are people who have no uh, stigma or taboo around being public about it. Um, I do hope that as it goes and I have some pretty good ones coming, um, it gets broader and broader. Uh, But that's, that's has to do with the popularity of the show too. You know, is it, are you coming on a new show that no one's ever heard of about this? Or is this a show that a bunch of people that you like and respect have come on? Well, now you'd come on the show. So it's just like long form podcasts in, in a certain way, which was, you know, we couldn't get bigger names until we had had bigger names. Mm-hmm. Um, I like can't get people to be. Yeah. And I can't, it's a big ask to, to come, come on and talk about weed. Um, so I have to be really open about it and public about it. And I have to be really clear about my intentions when I talk to people and I, I'm not great at it yet. I don't think it's something I, I feel like it's a work in progress. So tell me about the, the Charlie Warzel episode. Uh, I, I hope I didn't butcher his last name, but the, um, he writes for Buzzfeed yeah, right. and he covered, yep. he covered Alex Jones's trial and you brought him on ostensibly to talk about like Alex Jones talking about smoking pot during his trial. But yeah. But I mean, that seemed like a, a weird one, like to me after listening to the rest, um, just because it was like kind of like a fringe connection. Uh, yes. So talk about that a little bit. Well, to me, what I'd like to cover is not simply like the plant marijuana, but um, the whole idea of stoner culture. Um, and I think that covers a wide swath, um, you know, from vintage psychedelia um, to, you know, modern day TV culture, um, to a lot of internet culture and conspiracy theory is definitely part of it. Um, and I think Alex Jones is this kind of like wacky fringe character who, who came out of, um, public access TV, which is another fringe of stoner culture. Um, so it's not like a direct bullseye, Mm -hmm. but I thought it would be interesting to talk about and I thought it would be t- interesting to talk to someone like Charlie who kind of like he's in that like he's in that world. He's probably like he Alex Jones knows who he is. You know, he's like crossed over into the like weird heightened info world's world. So, you know, I would like probably I would like the, the show to be a bullseye every time. But if I can get something that's going to be entertaining and I feel like would, would work for the audience, I'm willing to bend it a bit yeah. because I don't think anyone wants to sit there and hear like weed people talk over and over and over again. I want actually it to me, it's helpful if the show is as broad as possible. Um, and that's the same, you know, view I took with, with long form podcast about having on someone like Tim Ferriss, who people don't think of as like a nonfiction journalist, but is, you know, 
creating books on has his own system and his own way of doing things. And I thought like what his experience was would be interesting to other people. I think Alex Jones is kind of an interesting test case about um, public marijuana use. Did um, you have like Tim on think- the show on long form? Yeah, Tim's been on a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I missed that episode. Uh, it was a long time ago. He's an interesting guy. I went to Montauk for the day and hung out with him. And we like went to, like, he had a new puppy and we went swimming in the ocean together. It was cool. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I sounds like a lovely day. Yeah, it was. It was. It was really very beautiful. And, and I actually, I I think he's a really interesting person. Uh, I think he, like in some ways, Tim Ferriss is like more interesting to me than Tim Ferriss's writing. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it definitely shows because you guys have like a really eclectic taste with long form and, and you're definitely bringing that over to stoner. And I mean, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. One way to have a very collective eclectic taste is to do like 250 episodes. Like if yeah. you do anything enough times, you have got to uh, break a lot of patterns. Yeah. I mean, Kyle and I with this show already, like are, are really figuring out. I mean, it is a chicken and egg thing with the guests. Like we've gotten like a few no's at this point. It, ironically not as many as I'd expect. <laughs> Don't but. be so modest. There have been many, many no's. Yeah, but still like less <laughs> yeah. less than I would have thought, to be honest. Less but, than one hundred. Yeah. How many yeah. Epi- what epi- how many episodes are you? Uh, you'll be thirty five, I think. Thirty five, yeah. You guys are ba- you're still babies. Wait, can we expect to can we expect the learning curve to like be less steep after a hundred? Is that something we can look forward to? I don't think you learn anything after a hundred. After one hundred, you learn how to like do the same thing, like the like Zen of doing the same thing forever. <laughs> okay, so that's the goal now. Pretty much, is just to yeah. hit that Zen. That's that's. Do you still get on. nervous when you do interviews? No. Did you ever get nervous when you did interviews? Yes. Who is the most nervous you've ever been? Uh, most nervous I've, i was pretty nervous michael lewis pretty oh, nervous. yeah that was a good one though because it was also like a phoner and i don't really like to do phoners and i didn't have as long as i usually have and i don't like to go short because you have a lot less like flexibility to cut anything or to mm-hmm. have a segment not not work yeah lewis was i wasn't totally happy with it it was good because if i'm doing if i'm doing michael lewis like some random person comes in and we do a shitty podcast. I don't care. People listen to it. They like it. They don't like it. I don't really care. If I have on Michael Lewis, I know people are going to like go straight into the archive and just like hone in on it and start mm-hmm. there. It might be the first one they listen to. And also, how many times has Michael Lewis been like extensively audio interviewed? Not that many. He's not like... He's not a person who gives a tremendous amount of like podcast kind of interviews. So if we have one, I'd like it to be like the definitive one. So it kind of sucks if it can't be that. Yeah, I, that, can I? That makes me nervous. I, I have to say, and this is probably the worst thing I can tell you right now. Uh, Michael Ian Black <laughs> did an interview with uh, Michael Lewis on how to be amazing. And it was better. I mean, I, I, it was. He had more time, but yeah, but it was an amazing interview. Yeah, I believe it. I think he would make a really good interview. He's really good. Yeah. It also seems like it would be so intimidating to talk to him about anything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, anyway, what uh like what do you do differently with your guests on Stoner and on Longform? Um 
Stoner, I have to really like invent what the show is about more right now. So it's more me setting some sort of a framework that consists of um, a discussion of who they are and what they're doing and sort of creativity and like where they got ideas from. Um, but also, you know, kind of like your basic WTF, like what's your story, but then also like, like, do you smoke weed? If so, sort of tell me the story of your relationship with weed and um, tell me where it got started, who you were when you were a teenager, etc. So I'm, it's, it's not as clear a script for me. I pretty much know how to structure a long form interview in my head pretty easily. Um, but with stoner, it's a great variation. And I'm, yeah, I'm lost a lot of the time. A lot of time I have to tape like an hour and to do like a 30 minute cut and I have to cut really extensively because, um, I still don't really know how to drive the ship. You'll be happy to know that Kyle and I met over pot. Oh, that's I, uh, good. Didn't, yeah, tell me about it. I sold him <laughs> a, uh, a bad pot brownie that didn't actually work on him. That's not a bad pot brownie. That's just a dead bad. Uh, a bad pot brownie is is, uh, is too much pot pot brownie. <laughs> I think Kyle would have really wanted that. I mean, so I think that was. Did you give him a, a refund? I no. gave him another brownie, which okay. was also dead. Were these homemade brown? Do you make them? I used to. I, I don't really smoke anymore, but uh, for a long time I smoked quite a bit, and I would. Make what brownies. is your explanation for why these brownies didn't work? Oh, I was, yeah. you know, college kid who was just like mixing back. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Wait, do you want to know what he said to me at the time? Yeah, what uh, you're, yeah, uh, reenact uh, the scene. Uh, I don't know, man. Everybody else, you know, uh, Matt said his face melted, so I don't know what's wrong with this, bro. Hey, why don't you? Why don't you try another one? Uh, you know what? Yeah, this. Yeah, try this one. And then that one also didn't work. Wow. Do you, so, Kyle. Do you think you maybe just have like? A super immunity to weed brownies? No, because since uh, most of them have been uh, bad brownie experiences, so you, it's gone the opposite direction. So your your enduring conclusion is that Jeff did try to scam you twice. Maybe. Uh, that's that's a, that's how I'm seeing the story. <laughs> it fits my mo. I just went and bought like a little Debbie's brownie and gave it to him. Yeah, but. he. They're like kind of like a different tint. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one had walnuts in it. That should yeah. have been a giveaway. Well, so so why did you make a podcast about about like smoking culture or pot culture? Um, so when I think about things to base a show on, I like doing shows for one. I, want, I like interviewing people, and I think about what the connective tissue between people is, and what kind of questions can lead interesting places. Um, and to me, the question of when did you first smoke pot is a really interesting question because it asks where are you from and who did you hang out with when you were a teenager and how did that person become the person you are now? Um, which is generally the story I'm trying to tell on a podcast, you know? Um, is it working that, so far? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, you tell me, I, it, I haven't, um, I haven't gotten all the kinds of people that I'd like to be on the show um, because I also want to talk about what's happening now. Um, I think there's an increasing number of people in America who are embrace, embracing smoking weed as an alternative to drinking um, and that it could really change our culture. Um, and you already see it in California. If you go hang out in L.A., people are living in a very different future than live in New York right now. Um, but... That future is very 
unevenly distributed across the country and there's all of these business issues and legal issues and um, issues of um, political equality and social justice that are all tangled up with this issue. So I think it's a really like interesting place to be over the next decade. I'm an interesting line in the sand. Um, the issue of being open about smoking weed or smoking weed and not being open about it. Um, all that stuff's really like an interesting cultural moment, I think. And that's what I'm looking for when I do a show is to, to pick something that has a lot of room to develop. Um, because I've done this show now for five years. So I'm thinking in the five year term with stoner. And is it successful from like a consumer point of view? Um, I think growth is really strong, but it's starting from zero. So, um, you know, again, give a year before I'm even going to discuss it, but I have already talked to sponsors. Um, that's good. And I think that there's a huge, there's a huge amount of people who are trying to get into this as a business. And that's always, you know, the people who listen to the show are not necessarily people who like own dispensaries, but I think people are very curious about what's going on. Um, and most of the existing media services ads that are basically like, 50% off this dispensary in San Francisco, blah, blah, Groupon, blah, and trying to do something that's a little bit more thoughtful and is aimed at really like educating people and giving them a sense of empathy and community, um, I think could be a valuable space. So I, I do think about it that way for sure. So what, what kind of like companies are coming to you for advertising? If you don't uh, mind me asking. I mean, so there's companies that are in the like portables space, like vaporizers. That's a huge market. Um, and then there's also companies that operate in the legal space uh, in legalization states. And that one's a little bit trickier because it's a podcasting is a national market. And most of the advertising for weed is local. Um, there's also people who run like online kind of like, cool dwell magazine-y head shoppy kind of businesses. And that's an interesting place. So um, I'm kind of feeling it out now. But you can imagine that if I was building, let's say I build up an audience that's the size of long forms, three or 400,000 people a month listen to my episodes. That would be one of the largest like weed markets. And that would be one of the like biggest outlets for uh, weed in the country um, to advertise higher end products or um, experiences. So I do think it's valuable real estate. And oh, I mean, you what you've come up with already is is like fascinating. And I think it's going to be something huge. I mean, and you've talked about this before, but like there are a lot of pitfalls that you have to like kind of jump over and, and, and weave in and out of. What are my what are the pitfalls? Let me let me know so I don't crash into anything. <laughs> well, it's like you know you have different laws in every state, and this is oh like sure 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 pretty much like a national audience that you're advertising to. You know oh absolutely po- absolutely podcast advertising is 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 developing, but like so far it's not really like a location based ad service at this point. And and that's for the best, really. I mean, that's why I think podcasts are a good place to be, is because they they haven't been sucked into the like absolutely race to the bottom internet. So there's still room to do things that are really tasteful. And, um, I think are really good, have a good impact for people who are sponsors and generate real income for people doing the shows. So 
I was very conscious in doing stoner that I did not want to do like a daily updating, like news cycle blog kind of thing. I want to do something that works at a slower pace. And that may mean it takes a year. I mean, you might look at stoner for a whole year and be like, he hasn't really had anyone on. Like, what is this stuff? Well, I, I mean, let, let's, let's clarify. And that like, you and have the, already had some amazing guests. Yeah. But I haven't had anyone that's going to like drive a mass audience on the show yet. Um, there's not an immediate, like if you were starting, if you took a million dollars in venture money and started a weed vertical, you would want to make a much bigger splash than this, but you also might run out of that money within a year or two before you're able to really, uh, fully realize the idea of the brand. Um, and so I'm trying to stick around for the right term to where this is valuable, you know, to where ideally national legalization does hit and there aren't really a lot of national brands. Um, there's of course like high times and things like that, but I think I'm going for something that's smaller and more intimate than that. Um, so we'll see. Who's the dream guest. Who's somebody who you really look forward to talking to Barack Obama. (laughs) I didn't inhale. Uh, that was Clinton, right? That was, that was Bill Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was right off the bat. You've thought about this. That would be my the number one guest I could get because you know you know Obama has smoked weed like he's has he said, said so before. publicly? Yeah, well oh, yeah. he said I mean he did like cocaine and like he's been public about it. It's and safe to assume. You also know that he's a person who like deeply enjoys and has a fraught relationship with vice um, <laughs> in the form of cigarettes. So I just yeah. think he'd be a fascinating person to talk to about it. Um, but uh, he's he's someone I would love to get. There's, there there's literally hundreds of people that I think would be make for really interesting conversations. Would you interview Trump? Um, I don't, does Trump smoke weed? I doubt it. So um, I guess, not. Yeah, so, so is that a thing you you won't interview anybody who doesn't smoke? No, I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see Trump going in on the podcast. Media. <laughs> I mean, you know, like it's saying Barack Obama's crazy, but like, you know, it's like one degree crazy. Like he was on Mark Maron's show, you he know, did, he did like, between two ferns. Yeah. You, know? you never know. You never yeah. know with media. You never know. So I, I want to ask you, uh, the questions that you ask your guests at the end of every episode, but I don't remember half of them. Um, which, <laughs> which is like, you know, silly for me to say, but, uh, well, can we start with the, can we start with the, the one where you tell us about your first experience with pot? Um, I feel like I've, I've done this. I'm, I'm worried I'm playing these stories out, but, uh, uh, what's the, the most time... interesting story with pot that you have then? <laughs> the, the first time I smoked pot, uh, was at the, uh, Tibetan freedom concert and golden gate park in San Francisco, uh, 1994, I'm going to say, uh, headlined by the beastie boys. And, uh, oh, I believe red hot chili peppers and the smashing pumpkins, uh, smashing pumpkins were probably my favorite band at the time. Um, that was the first time I, I ever smoked weed. Yeah. What about the most interesting time? Most interesting time? Wow. You know, I don't have like a, a great memory for that kind of, I mean, I've been smoking weed pretty consistently for like a lot of my adult life. So like if you cite some movie that I saw that was transcendent, pretty good chance I was like smoking weed <laughs> TV experiences. <laughs> like, uh, that's that's kind of what it's what it's felt like. I will tell you a scary weed story, which is 
the last time I remember being way too high, which doesn't happen to me very much. I'm not like a like fucking hit a giant volcano and like stare at the wall. Like I'm I'm like a kind of like social like I'm sort of slowly smoking joints uh, consistently. But uh, on that Chance the Rapper tour, I had some there was a there was a blunt in a dressing room and I got onto the stage and it was like the most people who had I'd, we'd ever been in been in you know below the stage basically and i'm in that weird place i'm on the side of the stage so i can't really like communicate with anyone i'm just kind of like have like a, a cord going out from my laptop and no one can see me and i just was like oh my god i'm way too high and i was just like kind of like looking at my laptop like uh, not clear which button would like hit play <laughs> just re- rethinking everything about how i controlled the set off my laptop and it's kind of dark, so you couldn't really see the buttons very well. And I was just like, I don't know if I can make this play. I don't know. I don't know if I can, get, I don't know if I can pull it off. <laughs> Probably like 10,000 people there. God, that sounds like uh, every weed nightmare I've ever had. Yeah. The good thing is that actually no one cares about people opening shows anyway, so you really could fuck up pretty badly and no one will remember it. Did you press the right button? I did press the right button, which is the space bar. <laughs> Jesus. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a hotkey combination. It was a pretty easy it was a pretty easy test. So I I you know, I I've known known of you and I've known you for, you know, a few years and so I did some research for this episode and I saw a couple items on here that um uh-oh. Like I I just wasn't really aware of in the past and uh so I wanted, and we've already mentioned one of them was that, which was that, like you've made music with or for, like Drake, Bon Iver, Kanye, and Chance the Rapper. Um, but I'm I'm hoping that you can just like elaborate on a couple of the items that that I found. Uh, one was um, David Carr was supposed to be on long form the night that he died. Correct. Was that? I mean, Dave, I I I know this is a very weird subject to bring up. But, it um, was Ma- it was Max interviewing him though, not me. Okay. Um, yeah, he can- he, I believe he was supposed to be on long form and he canceled because he um, was going to moderate a like a, a panel after a screening of the Snowden documentary Citizen Four, which I was actually at, um, but I was at the uh, a different location, the one he was not at, and he, yeah, he died. Uh, I guess right at, right after that screening, I think. It's too bad. I remember actually, I had met with Max for a meeting like five years ago, uh, right before you guys launched the long form app. And he told me that like he was going to try and get David Carr to moderate a panel. And I was blown away because, you know, David Carr was and always will be like one of my favorite writers of all time. Uh, and, you know, that would have been a gem. So sorry. We did that panel happen. happened. Yeah. I mean, you, but it, I think it was the second panel that you guys were going to do. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, that like, panel was huge. Yeah, it was, it was about long form journalism. It was right? a South by Southwest hit. Okay, so that's what it was. Yeah, um, I love David Carr. Um, he's, uh, I mean, you can't even really say he was like gone too soon. Like David Carr lived a lot, um, but yeah. he's one of the people. I mean, he's definitely an example of, you know, really just living your life to the fullest and not knowing how long that life is going to be. I mean, he's not. He, I was as shocked when he died as anyone I've ever, you know, heard died. He, he just seemed like one of the most 
uh, vital people. Um, but you know, I would give anything to see what he had to say about like what's happening yeah. today. Yeah. He's definitely a, uh, he, he definitely missed the Trump era. He would have been, uh, he would have been, uh, he would have had a lot to say for sure. Human wrecking ball. Um, you, you were also interviewed on Reply All about domain names. Oh yeah, yes. What was that? It was like? supposed to be a follow up to that actually, but it didn't it didn't materialize. It was just uh, texting with uh, Goldman. Um, what was that like? It was cool. The funny thing is, I had actually never heard Reply All before we were on. I've listened to it significantly since then. But I, it was I wasn't actually. We were one on one of the kind of early episodes of the yeah of, of it since it, after they moved to Gimlet. So I actually uh, heard it, but I I, I didn't know um, that it was you guys until I read this, and then I had to look back. Yes, uh, yeah, it was cool. It was it was kind of like the most detectivey thing that we ever I ever did because we were like our belief was that we were dealing with multiple people, uh, one a single person operating in our multiple emails. And so, like, the way those guys work, you know, they're fast. They got to do a show a week. They're just like, well, fuck it. Let's call them. And then it's just like two minutes after we walked in, uh, the phone's ringing and it's the guy. You know, it's like this guy we've been having these, like, shadowy dealings with for months. Um, but I think we were ultimately wrong um, about what we had thought was happening. It doesn't answer the question of what really was happening. But I do think that that guy, who I believe to be a mastermind, uh, was actually just a domain shark, and there is another <laughs> player involved. Uh, so, so anybody who has no idea anyway, what we're talking I, about should go back. Yeah, and just yeah, listen it's, it's to a that really very complicated story. You kind of listen to <laughs> the entire story. There is a solution, actually. We did solve the mystery, but they did not make the follow episode. And I'm unfortunately not comfortable. I can't really say exactly what we found out because, for legal reasons. But did, uh, did you get the domain? We did not get the domain, but I do know who owns the domain. Okay. Uh, and it's not it's not the person who's um, we talked to in that reply all episode. It's not the person who currently owns the domain. Interesting. So I, I, I think we're at the point now. I mean, I, I would love to keep talking to you about this for hours and hours, but I know you have to run. So I think we're at the point in the show now where we, we talk to our guests about like the one story they've always struggled to tell. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. So you sent us a couple different options. Um, and I'm going to let you choose. Uh, typically we, we will like guide the discussion, but, um, is there any that you prefer to talk about more than any of the other? Well, I feel like the music one, we kind of maybe already talked about a little bit, so maybe yeah. we shouldn't do that one. I'll give you, I'll give you pick of any of the other ones since we, uh, since we did, I guess, kind of talk about music. Kyle? I, I mean, I, I want to know more about the man living in the houseboat. Okay. Um, that's... The tease is so good. Is that your is that your answer? I don't even remember what the other one was. So, uh, you were gonna uh, talk to us about um, Loveland. Oh yeah, I mean that's not really a personal story. That's more of like a personal obsession. So yeah. Take your pick. Take your pick. You guys going houseboat? Yeah, we'll we'll go houseboat. I think I would vote for houseboat. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna state in advance that the story doesn't really make sense, and <laughs> it's possible that. Certain parts of the story have like gotten changed over time or someone sort of like lied about it and it became, but so I used to go on like long bike rides with my friends. We used to ride bikes around, uh, around the Bay area. It's kind of like a thing, like a, like a, a, a hobby that was encouraged by many of my friends, parents. And we were teenagers. We go on long, you know, like 20, 30 miles bike rides sort of through the hills of the Bay area. 
This bike ride particularly, I still can't I can't say exactly um, where it took place. Um, think basically from the East Bay towards the Richmond Bridge, I believe. Um, we were biking in that direction, and we ended up. See, I think I think of the story as taking place in Sausalito, but it's not actually Sausalito. It's a Sausalito-like marina, but it's a different marina, more in the Richmond area. So there was a, a terrible storm, and we were uh, we we've, we sought shelter, uh, and we sought shelter at this houseboat because there was like a little marina, but there was like nowhere to go inside in it. And there was this guy who was kind of like saying this house, like said, come in here, come in here. Well, I'll make you tea. So it was like three or four of us. And this guy was just like, I mean, I grew up in Berkeley. I met a, like a lot of pretty crazy people when I was a kid. Like there's a lot of like pretty like real cranks in the East Bay this period. Um, and this guy was just kind of like a very recognizable type anyway. So he made us tea and he was sort of started telling us his story, um, which I don't remember very much of, except that he was, uh, he had a, he had HIV, but he was able to like keep it from, uh, hurting him because he had like this incredible super weed that he smoked. (laughs) And he said that this weed grew in this government warehouse um, in these fields, kind of in the area where we biked, like a place we knew. Not not like right where we were, but like a mile or two away. And he said that, um, this is on the coastline, that this these were these sort of abandoned military barracks. There's several of them. There's Treasure Island has them. And there's several installations around the Bay Area. Again, I still don't know where this actually took place. So, giant <laughs> asterisks. So, he said, this is where they used to slaughter the whale carcasses. Um, and just millions and millions of pounds of whale blubber soaked into the earth. And it's like rich in nitrogen and all of these um, for basically fertilizers. And it created this uh super weed that grows 40 feet tall in these warehouses and so we um we were like we gotta go we gotta go find this we gotta go get this like i know that this seems like right now you'd be like this person was like bullshitting you but at the time and particularly like in the bay area like parts of this story seem sort of plausible like when you're a kid, you don't really know how weed grows. And you, there were people who were like growing crazy weed plants out in the wild around the Bay Area. Like I knew people who had done it. And there were these like crazy warehouses where you'd find like weird stuff. Like we would be like breaking, you know, going through like we walked. There's a steam tunnel that goes all the way th- through Berkeley, all the way under Berkeley from the campus to the water two miles underground in a tunnel. And in the middle of that tunnel, there's a, there's a, a, a giant drainage, like that's a pool and there's tons of white supremacist graffiti all over it. <laughs> what is it? It's, it takes, it takes you two hours of, of hiking in water to even get to it. So there was all these strange places that you, you had, you could find in the Bay area then. Um, 
And so this story seemed kind of real. So we were like, we basically figured out where the warehouses were. And it was this strange kind of thing where you could park on the side of the road, but, and you could see the warehouses, but they were really like half a mile away from the road, even though you could see them. So we park and we start walking. We got like flashlights and we're like kind of like keeping low. And this is, this is technically like a decommissioned military base. And we get to the edge and there's a fence and we go over the fence and instantly, just as we get over the fence, right to the warehouse, like dogs, military police. I mean, they must have had some sort of a motion sensor or a camera, even though this feels like an area that's abandoned. How old were you at this point? 16, 17. So what do you do when you have like military police and dogs running? We were out? like, oh, we're just going for a walk. We're like, we're sorry. What a... <laughs> like just freaking out. <clears throat> I mean, the crazy part is we thought we were about to find a bunch of weed too. Like not only <laughs> were we caught instantly, we didn't have like, we didn't even have any like, like duffel bags or anything with us. Uh, so <laughs> they were like, what are you doing here? And we were like, kind of acted like we had just sort of wandered in and they were like, well, this is a, this is an active military base. And we we're like, well, well, there's nothing around here. And they're like, they're like, these warehouses have, are like, have mil- are like military like property. <clears throat> so we never saw inside the warehouse. And later we tried to go back and we never could find them again. That is the entirety of that story. Do you think that it was George Soros's super weed? It was something. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of interesting angles to the story. One of which is like, so this guy was like fucking with us, I guess, but (laughs) he did send us to a real place. But he was like the place he military base. The place he described did exist. Um, yeah, I think the problem uh, right here is that like when the strange man asked you if you wanted to come over and drink some tea, you said yes. Yeah. That was the, that's the part where I'm out. Like, yeah, yeah. Again, different times, different times. Um, you know, I think there was like a more, at least in the Bay area, like in the eighties and nineties, there was like a little bit more of a, like um, wide open kind of like hippie ethos in, in places like <coughs> some of these areas um, where that just didn't, doesn't seem that strange. Have you ever tried to Google earth that warehouse? No. Cause I have a terrible sense of direction and I probably couldn't like find like places I went, used to go all the time. Um, I have very bad. Also like the barrier is pretty big and it's confusing. And I never lived there during a time where um, GPS existed. So, no, it sounds like it could be like a Pineapple Express, like uh, number two, something like that. Yeah, like a find the warehouse. Yeah, yeah. Well, all Um, right. Sorry, that was not a very expansive. um, I've struggled to tell that story. You just heard me kind of struggle to tell it. It doesn't have a great (laughs) conclusion, but it was a it was a memorable time. I mean, yeah, you'd be shocked at how many of our stories don't have like solid like beginnings, middle, and ends. But I mean, not that many stories have not that many good stories have an end. Like you, you it's really unusual that you hit hit the trifecta, beginning, yeah. middle, end. I feel like if I mean, I I want to know where this warehouse is and what they have in it. Yeah, I was I was <laughs> just gonna say if you had told I'm the intrigued. story to like PJ and Alex on Reply All, then like their next step would have been like. 
let's microdose and then go find this place. Yes, something like that. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where uh, of can, course. Where, where can our listeners find you? Um, you can longforms at longform.org, and you can find a link to our podcast there. Just put it in the podcatcher of your choice. Uh, same thing with Stoner. Just search for it. It's at stoner.co or wherever you find podcasts. Um, let's see. Do I do anything else? Uh, Francis, Francis and the, and the Lights, Lights is at francisandthelights.com, but really just put it in Spotify or Apple Music. Our albums are like uh, everywhere. Um, yeah, actually, if you're like into Francis and the Lights, uh, some some uh, some new things uh, on the horizon. So uh, stay tuned. Ooh, uh, probably if you, if you've never heard our band, uh, a good place to start would be uh, search YouTube for the song uh, Friends by Francis and the Lights. Uh, that's that that get you going. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you guys. Thanks so much for being here. That was Aaron Lammer. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can find Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Lammer, A-A-R-O-N-L-A-M-M-E-R. You can find his podcast Longform at longform.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find his podcast Stoner at stoner.co. Francis and the Lights you can find on Spotify, iTunes, literally wherever you listen to music. And they also have a website, francisandthelights.com. I recommend you check out all of this stuff uh, because then you're going to be able to see whatever Aaron ends up doing next. And it's always really cool and exciting. Thanks so much for listening to Writers Who Don't Write. If you like the show, you can check us out online at www.podcast and wherever you use your social media. Uh, We want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library, who did the music at the top and the bottom of the hour. Uh, Check him out. Just Google Holland Patton Public Library. And we also want to thank Ben Sound, who made the music that you heard right in the middle of the show. Two weeks on the show, we have uh, author Ken Liu, who's won a bunch of science fiction awards for his collection, The Paper Menagerie. He's the author of The Dandelion Dynasty. Uh, book two came out in October of 2016, but we're going to spend most of our time talking about the grace of Kings. So if you want to read ahead and follow along with us, you would do well to read that. And we'll see you in two weeks. 